The text for this morning's sermon is found in Romans chapter 8, verses 18 through 25. Romans 8, verses 18 through 25. I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not of its own will, but by the will of him who subjected it, in hope, because the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to decay and obtain the glorious liberty of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning in travail together until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we, we await for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. In our series on hope now, we began asking the question last Sunday, specifically, what is the content of our Christian hope? That is, what is it that we are hoping for? We'll spend five weeks on this, and last Sunday's answer was, we are hoping for the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, Titus 2.13. And today's answer is, we are hoping for the redemption of our bodies. Verse 23 will be our focus in Romans 8. We ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Well, let's begin by putting this verse into its context here in Romans 8. So let's back up to the beginning of the paragraph at verse 18 and follow Paul's train of thought as he moves toward this verse. The first thing he says in verse 18 is that you children of God, whatever you experience in this life, whatever suffering or pain or frustration or discouragement, It is as nothing when compared to the glory that is going to be revealed to you and in you someday. It says, the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed to us. Then from this initial starting point of confidence and encouragement that the glory on the way is going to outstrip and make up for any suffering we had to go through here. He goes on to say why he's so confident this glory is coming in verse 19. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. Now, notice two things in this verse. First, the sons of God are not yet revealed. What does that mean? I think it means that all of us who are Christians, 
who are the children of God, are hidden in a sense. Even though we're called the light of the world in one text, we aren't yet revealed. We're just like everybody else. In many ways, we get sick. We get discouraged. We are burdened with things. We're just like if you walk down to the hospital at MMC and walk in there, don't expect just to find unbelievers. Believers are hidden in there, hurting with all the same diseases that all the unbelievers are hurting with, and therefore we're concealed. One day there's going to be a lightning bolt of separation. Believers are going to be revealed for who they really are when they are magnified in glory at the coming of Christ. But right now, we're hidden. We're not yet revealed. That's the first thing to notice in verse 19. And the second thing to notice in verse 19 is that the creation, trees and grass and clouds and air and monkeys and moons and stars and creation, all creation is is waiting, eagerly longing for this great Separation and this great glorification of the saints. A creation is like a little child who is taken by his mommy and daddy to a play. He sits there on the edge of his seat and says again and again to his parents, dismay. Is it starting yet? Is that man in the play? When are they going to start? On the edge of his seat, waiting eagerly waiting for the revelation of the sons of God if he were creation. Creation is like a little child just waiting, leaning in to the future where there's going to be this great revelation of the children of God. And so we ask, why does Paul have the right to say that trees and tigers and lakes and planets who don't have any mind to be self-conscious with are hoping, are, are longing, are expecting. What does this mean to impart to creation these, these longings? And I think that's what verse 20 is brought in to tell us. For the creation was subjected to futility, not of its own will, but by the will of him who subjected it in hope. Underline the phrase, in hope. Now notice two things in verse 20. Two things are built into creation. One, futility. And two, hope. You see that? The whole creation was subjected to futility. That is, frustration, pain, imperfection, corruption. We feel it. We see it. It's there. But not all. That's not all. The second thing is hope. Notice who did it. This futility is there by the will of him who subjected it in hope. In other words, the frustration the decay, the corruption, the imperfection that's all over the place in us and out there is not the last word. It's not the point. It's not the purpose of creation. When God brought creation under the curse 
of futility. When our first parents sinned, he didn't say, there, that's it. I've had it with creation. I'll start something in a new universe. That's not what he said. According to this text, he did it with hope in mind. He just built hope right into creation. It's as though when I look out my kitchen window, say a couple of weeks ago, before those little green things started out, there's this catalpa tree that's there. It's ugly. It's an ugly tree during the wintertime. In fact, when Noel and I looked at this house, I think we looked at it in the first part of May, three years ago, to buy it. There was the two catalpa trees. And we said, well, we'll have to cut these trees down. They're dead. Because everything else had leaves except these dumb catalpa trees. Well, I look at it and I should have said, this naked, gnarled, ugly catalpa tree is eagerly longing for the revelation of the sunshine of spring. What I mean is that it's just built into that tree to get a little fat and juicy, and then here comes the revelation of glory, and boom, it participates in it with green leaves, finally. Well, that's the way creation is longing. God built hope into this creation, and I frankly think that He designed seasons. Hope. A yearly springtime precisely to give us poor, discouraged Minnesotans a reminder that there is going to come an eternal spring someday, even though it may wait until May to get here while all the other country starts in March. Then verse 21 tells us what the hope of creation is. What, what are they hoping for? The creation itself will be set free from its bondage to decay and obtain the glorious liberty of the children of God, or literally will obtain the liberty of the glory of the children of God. Now, this is a magnificent concept. Let's get it. What Paul is saying here is that all of the corruption and futility and decay and frustration in creation, when the sons of God are magnified and manifest and glorified at the coming of Jesus, that creation is going to be swept up into the glory. It's going to take part in it. It's going to be changed by it. Think about this. You know the, the beatitude that says, uh, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Well, now, do you really think that when the Lord returns and the meek are glorified and manifested and revealed that God is going to hand over to them a futile, decaying, Corrupt inheritance? Well, of course not. He's going to give them the earth, but what sort of earth will it be in that day? It will be, like this verse says, an earth that has been set free from bondage to decay and an earth that is now obtaining the glorious liberty of the children of God that they themselves have just obtained at the coming of Jesus. So this earth, you and I, who know Christ as our Savior, are going to be renewed in one great kind of cataclysmic renewal of this earth. And all the corruption of creation will be gone. And we will be new and it will be new. Now this is a, a difficult sequence of 
thought that I've just brought you through here from verse 18 to 21. If you've been watching carefully in your Bible, you know that each verse began with a for or a because. So it's a, it's a train of argument. It's not easy. So sometimes what's helpful when you have a train of argument like this is to turn it upside down and read it backwards, changing all the fours to therefores. Let's do that. Verse 21. All creation is going to share in the glory of the children of God someday. Therefore, verse 20. The futility that you see everywhere in creation is not a dead-end street. It is full of hope. You can see how that follows, don't you? There's hope built into this futile and, and struggling creation. Therefore, verse 19, creation is like a little child on the edge of a street, leaning over the rope, looking down the road. When will the parade of glory begin? And that follows, that makes sense. And therefore, verse 18, take heart when you have to endure various struggles and trials because there's coming a glory that is so far going to outstrip anything you've suffered that it'll make it seem, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, like a light and momentary affliction. I can't say that, but Paul can say that because he really well, that's the train of thought, and now here we are, ready to hear the sober news of our text in verses 22 and 23. It goes like this. We know that the whole creation has been groaning in travail. That's the word used for a mother who's in labor pains. Together until now, and not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait and wait and wait for the adoption of sons, the redemption of our bodies. So let's say it again. The redemption of our bodies is not yet a present reality. You see that? The redemption of our bodies is not yet a present reality. This is an era of groaning, not an era of glory. First groaning for three score and ten. And if by reason of strength, four score. And then, an age of glory at the resurrection. All the futility in creation attacks not only unbelievers, but do you see his emphasis here in verse 23? We, even we ourselves, we who have the Holy Spirit. Because there were people no doubt saying, well, if you've got the Holy Spirit, you don't have to groan anymore. You can get healed from every sickness. Paul is against that teaching. He's not against healing, and I believe in divine healing. But he's against the doctrine that says, you have enough faith and you've got the Holy Spirit. You don't have to groan anymore under the curse of a redeemed body. That's a lie. That's coming. But it isn't here yet. We have the Spirit. And what's the Spirit called? It's called first fruits. 
It's called down payment. It's called earnest. Seal. Now, I love the Holy Spirit. I don't know what I would do without the Holy Spirit to hold on to me in the midst of groaning. Patience is a gift or a fruit of the Holy Spirit, right? Galatians 5. But you know from experience that patience is a fruit of hope as well. No hope, very hard not to be irritable. So how does the Holy Spirit produce Patience. I think he produces it by producing hope. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. It's the Holy Spirit that produces hope. And how does he do it? By making us believe, verse 18. Namely, that whatever miseries we encounter in this life, whatever futility, whatever frustration, it will not be so great that we cannot have hope that it will be utterly compensated for in the age to come with the glory that is coming to the children of God. And so he gives patience. He is the spirit of hope. And he directs our attention to the word and hope and promise. And he does not take away the groaning yet. I want us to think for the rest of our time together now about this hope. There is a hope. It is specific. It is concrete. It is precious. It is wonderful that there is coming a day when this old body and your old body with all of its arthritis is going to be changed in the twinkling of an eye and it will be strong, healthy, handsome, and magnificent in the age to come. I want us to think about that hope and as soon as I started thinking on it this week, a danger rose in my mind. Isn't it dangerous for me, a pastor, to very forcefully tell you, set your hope on a redeemed body? Because might I not tempt you and lure you to set your hope on something other than God? Might I not involve you in idolatry so that you say, yeah, that's what I want. I want health. I want beauty. I want strength. And God starts to fade. Fellowship with Him. Intimacy with Him. Seeing Him face to face. That sort of just drifts off to the side. I'm very scared of that danger in this sermon. So I want to make you aware of it. Because it's a real danger. Don't you know, you may be one of these people, that there are people who embrace Christianity, at least in its external forms, precisely because they're scared to death of the pain of hell, and they would love to have the comforts of heaven. And if God turned out not to be there, that would be all right, as long as they were healthy and strong and could have a good time. And they won't make it, brothers and sisters. They're deceiving themselves by the buying into Christian doctrine and not having a heart love for Jesus Christ and hoping to see Him someday face to face in fellowship with Him forever. People that don't hope in God won't see God. So there's a danger here. 
I make it aware. I make you aware of it with me. And I want to try to show you why we can hope in a redeemed body and not fall prey to the danger. And here's the way I have moved toward that answer. How can that be done? Another question arose in my mind. Why did God create bodies anyway? I mean, why is there wood and plaster and glass and fabric and skin and bones and hair? Why all of this stuff? Why didn't He just create spirits and surround Himself with a myriad of disembodied angelic spirits who without any worry with their bodies would praise Him and glorify Him in purity all their days? Why did He get Himself mixed up with a world made of stuff and a people with bodies? That's a real important question. And if we can answer that question from the New Testament, we might be able to answer why He would think it worthwhile to redeem those bodies. And if we could answer that question, we might know how to set our hope on that redemption without becoming idolaters. So let's try to answer that first question. Why do you have a body? You may never ask that question before. You take it so for granted. He didn't have to do it this way. Why do you have a body? Now, we don't have time for you to look up all these texts with me, but let me just read them and you can uh, jot them down and, and I'll, I'll just make a comment on them. First of all, 1 Corinthians 6.13. A crystal clear statement. The body is not meant for immorality, but for the Lord. Wow, I love that kind of a sentence. It just rings with clarity. The body is for the Lord. Why do you have a body? For God. But then we ask, well, in what sense for the Lord? And we read on in the chapter, and he comes to the end in verses 19 to 20. And it says, do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit, which you have from God? You are not your own. You were bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God with your body. So why do you have a body? God gave you a body so that you would use it to glorify Him. Paul gave a personal illustration from his own life about what this means. In Philippians chapter 1, verse 20, he's on the brink of death in a Roman prison. And he writes this letter and it says, It is my eager expectation and hope that I shall not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be magnified in my body. So why does he have a body? To provide a unique, occasion and means by which Christ can become magnified in the world. Shown to be great. Displayed for others to see. So we have bodies. You might call them musical instruments with which to worship. Or you could call them tools with which to do the work of God in the world. Or you could call them weapons with which to fight the fight of, of faith for the glory of God. There's a text that all of you probably know, most of you, by heart, Romans 12, 1. It may be the most important one of all. 
I beseech you by the mercies of God, brethren, to present your bodies as living sacrifices to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. Why do we have bodies? To provide a unique, manifoldly different occasion for worshiping God than we would have had had we only been disembodied spirits floating around in the in heaven. And one more, Romans 6.13. Do not yield your members, that is your hands and arms and legs and tongue and ears and eyes. Do not yield your members to sin as instruments of wickedness, but yield yourselves to God as men who have been brought from death to life and yield your members to God as instruments of Righteousness. Why do we have hands and arms and legs and tongues and eyes and ears? To provide us an occasion of obedience to the righteousness of God, which we would not have had had we only been disembodied spirits in heaven. To be sure, if we were only spirits, we could worship God. We could obey God like the angels do. But here's the main point. God is so zealous for the display and the effusion of His glory that He looks out on His angelic host and He says, this isn't enough. This doesn't provide enough manifold means whereby my glory can be refracted to my praise. I'm going to do something else. Hmm. I will think up and I will create a physical material universe. Yes, there it is. Now, I will put in it people in my image and I will clothe them with skin and bones, a body, a mind, a heart. And now look at the ways I can be praised. Look at the ways I can be obeyed that the angels never dreamed of. You see, you'll never understand why you have a body until you understand the heart of God. It is like a volcano. It is just effusive with glory. It wants its glory out. It is just constantly exploding with ways for himself to be praised by the uh, reflection of his glory in the various objects of his creation. So that's my answer to the question, brothers and sisters, why I have a body and why you have a body. Because God wants to create as many varied means whereby his creatures can praise him and obey him as possible. Your body is for the Lord. Now we go back to our text and our other question. The question, namely... Should we, can we, set our hope on the redemption of these bodies without becoming idolaters or losing our God-centeredness? My answer is yes. The text, verse 23, says, We ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait 
for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. In this hope, we were saved. This text teaches us to hope in the redemption of our bodies. It's not wrong to want to be off the crutches, off the cortisone, off the Tylenol, out of the wheelchair, strong again, seeing and hearing with the eyes you had when you were 20. It's not wrong to want that. In fact, I believe it's a biblical mandate to hope for that. There are three things that are meant in the redemption of our bodies. One, all pain, all disease, all Frustration and futility in the body, all disability, all deformity, all ugliness will be gone. Second, sin. Now, watch it here. The body is not evil. But sin, which takes the body so often as its base of operation. And therefore, through the body, tries to lure us into temptation. That sin is going to be gone. And therefore, your body will never tempt you with evil again. Your body will only be an occasion for exquisite pleasure forever and ever when sin is gone. And third, the pain will be gone. The sin will be gone. Not because the body will be gone. Not because we'll be disembodied spirits floating around in heaven. But because our bodies will be new. Again and again, the New Testament teaches he will raise our mortal bodies. There is a connection. There is a continuity between the you sitting in that pew and the you that will be. It will not be some new made up person that nobody can recognize. You will be raised from the dead and made new in the kingdom to come. And so the biblical answer is a resounding yes We can and we must hope for the redemption of our bodies. And having seen why we have a body, you should know easily why it's not going to be idolatrous. Let me try to finish by talking to the children, the few that are here, and really to all of you. But kids, listen to me for three minutes and then I'm done. Because I can remember when I was a kid, heaven did not get me excited. In fact, it scared me because I saw my mommy, I saw my daddy, I saw my toys, I saw my house, I saw myself in the mirror, and my thought of heaven was leaving it all. It's going to leave The age to come forever and ever and ever and ever and ever and ever was, gee, what is this going to be? Kind of a no man's land where I don't know what it's going to be like because I won't be the me in the mirror maybe, and, and all my mommy and daddy and my friends and my toys and my house will be gone and... I couldn't get excited about that. And I admit that part of that was my fault because I probably wasn't listening very carefully when my mom and dad taught me right. And I probably didn't love Jesus as much as I should have so that I wanted to be with him more than I wanted to be with anybody else. I admit it was probably mostly my fault. But it was there anyway. I couldn't get excited about this new age that was going to come. I didn't know what it was going to be like. And I needed somebody to tell me it's going to be a lot like the here and now. Anything good and happy in your life will not be taken away from you in the age to come. It will be improved. 
All wickedness, all badness will be taken away. But in the age to come, there's going to be a magnificent new body. Still you, just better. Anything you don't like about it will be changed. And there will be playing and running and jumping and hiking and skating and swimming and skateboarding and hopping and you name it. Whatever you like to do when you are very, very happy. You're going to do it in the age to come. And so whether you're a child or whether you are a childlike adult, when you think about forever and ever and ever and ever, go ahead. Think about how good it's going to be to have a new body, to see one another, to be healthy and strong and handsome and pretty. But remember this. The reason that you are going to be happy forever and ever and the reason that you're not going to be sad forever and ever is because all of that playing and climbing and swimming and running and jumping and skating and hiking and climbing are going to be the use of a body as instruments of righteousness and as a display of the praise of the glory of the grace of God. There won't be any competition anymore between joy in play and joy in worship. They will be one. And I think it makes sense, therefore, brothers and sisters, don't you, that right now, we ought to go ahead and begin to get ready by offering our bodies up to God as sacrifices acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship, and offering our instruments, especially this one. Especially this one. Offer that instrument, the one with which you talk, as an instrument of righteousness. To his glory. Well, my goal this morning has been to make more precise and lively your hope in the redemption of your bodies. And then in turn to call you to begin to live that hope out for the glory of God in your bodies now.